0: We are continuing our study in uh, the, the, the letters of Thessalonians, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. We just finished his first letter last week, and this week we're, look, we're beginning the second uh, letter to the Thessalonians, and you'll notice as we go through this that there are themes that get repeated. Uh, it's not necessarily um, all new material, and, and this makes sense. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church because there were particular issues in Thessalonica that he was addressing. Uh, he was writing to encourage them. He was generally thankful for their faith, hope, and love, but he wanted to press them on in those things. Uh, and a couple of those things that are ongoing, that continue uh, in the life uh, of the Thessalonian church is the problem of the end of days. That when Jesus comes back, uh, there were false teachers, Uh, that were suggesting maybe Jesus already had returned secretly, privately, quietly, and it was impacting the way that that folks were living. And so Paul addressed it a little bit in his first letter, but he comes back to it in this second letter with sort of more detail and saying, no, it has not happened, and here are the signs, the things that will happen, and you will know uh, that, that the Lord Jesus has not yet returned, for when he returns, this is what it will be like. Um, and you 'll remember in the previous letter he had uh, given encouragement for people to work to be not to be uh, lazy but to to engage in, in their in, in the work and One of the reasons for that was uh, some folks were thinking the return was coming soon. well, that was another issue. Uh, Paul says again dives down into this issue of laziness in in more detail in his second letter, so he addresses various concerns. Uh, over again in 2 Thessalonians with more specificity uh, and more detail, uh, but the beginning of his letter, the, the the first part of his letter, the Apostle Paul uh, is giving thanks. Uh, this is something that we see throughout the throughout the Pauline epistles that he prays for and gives thanks, gives thanks for uh, the churches to whom he writes, and he, in particular in. The Thessalonian church, he's very grateful for them, and uh, he sees their faith, and he praises God for it, and that's what we see here at the beginning of the letter, even as he jumps into the topic of the return of the Lord Jesus, and that's what we're looking at this morning. So, with that, why don't we go ahead and read, we're going to read the whole of the first chapter of Second Thessalonians, uh, the, the, the verses 1 to 12, 2 Th- Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 12. Hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. To this end, we also pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our, Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. All right, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that you would indeed make uh, us worthy of your calling, Uh, Lord, not by our power, but by yours. So we pray these things, even as we hear your word and are encouraged to walk in faith and hope and love, that we would do it in full confidence that you are our God and you love us, that you died for us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. who is worthy in um, you might call in popular uh, culture or even in mythology cultural mythology uh, we have these these measures of worthiness one of them is in the ancient uh, the ancient work the Odyssey where Odysseus uh, is has a bow and if you know anything about the story uh, Penelope uh, she takes this bow Bow And she challenges her suitors as to whether uh, they are worthy of her love if they are able to string the bow and and shoot it uh, at this particular target and of course, all her suitors try and they all fail, and Odysseus is there and he is uh, they don't know it's him they don't know it's him, but uh, he takes the bow is able to string it and in the midst of this, this is an opportunity to vanquish his enemies who are there, and he and he kills them and he's able to use the bow. Uh, it was a it was a question who is worthy to hold the bow of Odysseus? Um Arthur, right? The, the great Camelot stories of Arthur, King Arthur and the round table. Well, when Arthur was young, Merlin set a set a, a, a a measure. Who is worthy to be the king? And whoever can take this stone, Excalibur, out of the sword, out of the stone, whoever can take this sword out of the stone uh, will be worthy. And of course, all these strong and mighty men come and none of them can make the sword budge uh, except for uh, Arthur, who was a young boy, comes and easily takes the stone. And of course, there's Thor's hammer, right? right? Who, who can hold it? Well, I won't ruin any stories. Thor can, obviously, but... Maybe someone else. Um, uh, you, 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 you can see there's these measures of who is worthy. Only the ones who are worthy. Worthiness is a theme, I think, in our cultural mythology. And, and at the same time, I think we dislike this idea of who is worthy. I don't think we like it. We like the antihero too, right? So yeah, we, we like the Supermans, the Thors. The, you know, all the Marvel her- characters, though some of them are anti-heroes too, but we like this idea that there are those who are worthy. And yet, at the same time, we don't. Um, we, want, we want heroes that are flawed, who are broken, who are a wreck, and yet somehow m- manage to rise to the occasion and save the day despite themselves. And so we have these two memes these two themes, these two ideals. The one is the one who is all-powerful and able and has virtue and is able to, to wield the sword or whatever it is. And then we have this ideal, this idea that says, but I want to be able to do it too. And I'm not able. I'm not worthy. Um, we know we're not worthy. So we have this dual thing going on. And I think it makes sense. We really actually want someone to save. We want someone who is worthy to come and rescue us because there's something broken about us. And at the same time, we want that glory ourselves. We want that glory. We want it. And and yet there's that conflict in our hearts. Well, in our text this morning, Paul twice brings up this idea of being worthy. In verse... 5, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And later in verse 11, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God might make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every and for good and every work of faith by his power. And we're going to unpack those two uh, verses in just a moment. But what I want to point out at this moment is this language of considered being worthy or of being made worthy and how uncomfortable it makes us feel. Mm. Uh, If someone says to you, you are are worthy, you are are wonderful, what is our immediate reaction? That's not, I'm not. (laughs) If you only knew the things about me, you wouldn't say I'm worthy. Whatever we're talking about, we would always sort of shrink back from that. Because we're uncomfortable, maybe it's just me, I'm uncomfortable with this idea of being called worthy in any sense. And the reason for that is quite plain. We are not worthy. We're sinners. We're broken. We have uh, the reality that we don't have what it takes to save ourselves We don't have strength and power and might. We don't have all the the wonders that are necessary to live righteous lives, perfect lives. But here's the good news and the thing that I want us to consider, the aim that we have. As we consider what it means to stand before the one who is worthy, the living God, what makes us worthy, or better put, Who makes us worthy? My aim this morning is to encourage our hearts. As we await the day of revelation, that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed, will be exposed as the glorious one, the revealed one, as he stands there ready to judge the living and the dead, and we recognize how unworthy we are as we come to him in all of our all of our you know, selves with every bit of mess that we, we have. When we come to him, he declares us as worthy, not because of anything in us, but because of himself, the lamb who is slain and whose grace is sufficient. Worthy is Jesus, and he gives you his grace. And this is good news. And as we think about this, I want to unpack this and this idea. Worthy is the Lamb and His grace is sufficient for you in three ways. First, worthy is the Lamb who's at work in you, believer. Worthy is the Lamb who is the judge. And worthy is the Lamb whose grace brings glory. Because that's that longing, that peace, that we want to we be worthy because we want to enjoy glory. Uh, But here, oftentimes, we, of course, turn it on ourselves, and we want our glory. But God brings grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings glory, firstly, for himself, and we enjoy and bask in that glory together with him. So, worthy is the Lamb whose grace brings glory. Those are the three, three places I want to go. First, worthy is the Lamb who is at work in you, believer. Now, 2 Thessalonians begins very commonly. Um, the, the, the greetings here aren't particularly notable. Sometimes you'll come across a letter of Paul's, and there's something very unique in it. But in 2 Thessalonians, and I would say 1 Thessalonians, the greeting that we have, is, it's important, but it's fairly common. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's common. It's common. It almost feels perfunctory. It almost feels like, Paul, you're just kind of going through the motion of writing a letter. We've all done that, right? Dear so-and-so, and we have our little phrases. You know, when I was a kid, we had to write handwritten letters in school and stuff. Do they still do that in school? They force you to write letters? Yeah? Good. That's good. It feels a little bit like that. But I, would, I want to suggest to you that when the Apostle Paul says grace and peace, it's more than perfunctory. In fact, it's the very thing we need always, daily, grace and peace. It's the very thing that, that brings life. So instead of it being perfunctory, we can think about it being the very thing that we need a daily dose of. You, you get up in the morning, you eat your breakfast, you drink water, you have something to, to, to nourish your body, then you do it again at lunch, then you do it again at dinner, then you wake up and you do it again, and you do it again, every single day. Now, you might skip meals here and there, I understand. But is eating and drinking perfunctory? No, it's life-sustaining. And I think that the Apostle Paul here is saying, what you need is God's grace and peace on a daily level, every day. And so when he writes it in his letters, I don't think he's just one-offing. He's saying, this is the most significant thing and putting it at the outset of the letter. But Paul moves from this greeting to another typical component of his letters, thanksgiving and prayer. And it's similar. We see this in 1 Thessalonians, just as we see here. And he thanks God for their growing faith, love, um, for their growing faith, for the love of everyone that is, that is also increasing, and for their steadfastness in faith as they face persecution and affliction. Um, you'll remember back in 1 Thessalonians, he gave thanks for their faith, hope, or faith, love, and hope. And here it's very similar. We have a similar thing. Faith, growing faith, love for everyone that, to, that continues to increase, and steadfastness in faith, which is hope, right? If you're steadfast in the face of affliction, it's because you know this is not the end of the story. That's mm-hmm. another way to, 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 to say hope. And so Paul brings these same themes here up again as he did in 1 Thessalonians. And he doesn't spend quite as long on his thanksgiving as he did before. I don't think that's because he's any less thankful, um, but because he wants to get at the heart of things. And here's where I want us to think about in terms of this thanksgiving, this faith, hope, and love. Notice a couple things about it. First, that their faith was abundant and growing. So he's given thanks for it before, and he's looking at it now, and he's seeing it continue to develop. But it wasn't only their faith. But their love, it was expressed not just that they loved one another, but it says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Notice the every there. The the love wasn't limited. It was the love of everyone. Everyone at the church, everyone there was growing in love and affection for one another. And it was increasing. And then finally, their hope. Their hope here is described as a steadfastness in faith in the face of persecution and affliction. Now, we're not told what those specific persecutions and afflictions were. You'll remember from my introduction to the first letter that we looked at the book of Acts when Paul initially went to Thessalonica. And in that initial conversion, when people were coming to faith and Paul was ministering, the... the, 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 people who didn't convert, he was in the synagogue, the Jews who didn't convert, got upset with Paul for disrupting the synagogue and they ended up dragging uh, the the early Christians to the government and and one of those folks, Jason was forced to pay a fine uh, and Paul and uh, Paul and Silas were kicked out of Thessalonica. So we've seen the types of persecution that were already happening in Thessalonica. Maybe it was something Like that. But this instance here, Paul is going to meditate on their, not just their faith and how it's growing and and their obedience to God and walking in faith and trusting in the Lord, not only the love that they're showing for one another, but particularly the way they stand up to and endure persecution and affliction. And he'll spend some time on this, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute as he looks at judgment. But he thanked God. He thanked God. It was possible that Paul could have looked at their faith, their love, their hope, their endurance, however you want to put it. He could have looked at it and said, I'm so grateful for you and for the way that you've listened to us and, and how well you're striving and all the things that you're doing. But he doesn't. He says... I, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Stop there for just a moment. Meditate on this. I think one of the hardest things to get our mind around as Christians with regard to the Christian faith is our sanctification. And what do I mean by sanctification? Sanctification is that ongoing work uh, that God is doing in our hearts by His Spirit to grow us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about obedience and, and walking in faith and bearing fruit, we're talking about growing in sanctification. The word just means becoming more holy, right? I believe that this doctrine of sanctification is the hardest doctrine that we have. I think it's the, that, that might be a big statement. I think generally, we don't struggle with the idea of forgiveness. Some of us might have trouble taking forgiveness, but we don't struggle with the concept or even justification that God would declare us righteous, not because of any righteousness in, in us, but because of what Christ has done in the righteousness that is counted towards us. It doesn't belong to us. Like we can We can get our minds around that, okay, Jesus obeyed, Jesus died, he rose again from the dead, and I'm therefore declared righteous, not because of my work, but his work. I think theologically we can get our mind around that. That might be hard, but I think we can all do this, and we sing amazing grace because we understand that, Mm -hmm. right? As believers, though it might be murky, we understand that we'll have eternal life in Christ. We don't struggle with that idea. We struggle maybe knowing the details of what eternal life might look like with him, but we get it. We want it. Something that's not too challenging. And though it's a mind-bender to think about Christ as fully God and fully man, we understand the necessity of it, right? Like we get that God, Christ had to be both God and man in order to satisfy divine justice, to represent us before Christ, we even the Trinity, as difficult as the Trinity is with understanding how God is three and one, we get that Scripture teaches it, and we rest in that—the reality that there is a Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't understand it fully, and it's difficult, and inscrutable. But when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to our working out of our faith, we regularly get confused and perplexed. Is it my work? Is it God's work? How do I know if I'm growing? What about the fact that I keep sinning? Does that negate my sanctification? What about the fact that I'm supposedly moving from one degree of glory to another, and yet I seem to be falling deeper and deeper into this sin? how, How do I reconcile those truths? Jesus has promised me his spirit and his power, but I feel powerless to kill off sin. Will he really say to me on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say to me, get away from me, I never knew you. We struggle with this, don't we? But I want to come back to this idea that the Apostle Paul does not thank the Thessalonians, but he thanks God. And here, it's not just he thanks God, but he says, not only occasionally do I thank God, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. You see, part of our problem, I think, with sanctification is that when we display faith, love, and hope, our impulse is to think, I got this, I can do it. I can do it. You know, I I said no to this thing today, I can do it. I can keep going. I've got this. And we forget that it is God's grace. Right? So instead of thanking God, oftentimes what we do is we take it on ourselves. I can do this. I don't struggle like so-and-so struggles. I got this. Wow. Wow. Right? Yeah. And then when we fail to show faith, hope, and love, we say, I'm a wreck. Why isn't God working in my life? Do you see the problem here? Do you see the disconnect when we fail to acknowledge and give thanks to God for His work in our lives, when we take the fruit of faith for granted or something we find pride in of ourselves and then when we struggle to sin we don't look back and say, but God worked before, right? We, see, if we're regularly, we ought always to give thanks to God all the time for what He is doing in our lives and as we do that, as we recognize the work of God and sanctification, when we do fall into the pit of sin and struggle and We find ourselves up against the wall. We can remind ourselves, but I know God works. He has done these things, and I know he'll continue to grow me, even as I am in the depths of this dark place. See, I think we struggle at the very heart of our struggle is that we fail to recognize that our sanctification, though it is something that we do in concert with the Holy Spirit, it is ultimately of God so Paul can say elsewhere work out your salvation in fear and trembling for it is god who wills works in you to will to both to do and to will i think the more we spend time recognizing the grace of god in our lives the more able we are to walk forward in newness of life even as we face our sin and our challenges And on top of that, you'll notice it's the Apostle Paul who's doing this. He's giving thanks. I think we need to recognize God's faith, God's work in other people's life as they walk in faith. right? And I've said this in the past. I said this in the last letter as well. But the more that we can encourage one another and show and say, Hey, I'm so thankful to God because I see God at work in you to one another then the more we'll understand this concept of sanctification. Okay, God is at work, especially in those dark moments where we're uncertain. Well, give thanks. Why? Because the Lamb who is worthy is at work in you by His grace. He is at work in you. But this leads us to my second point. Worthy is the Lamb who is the judge. Verse 5 is a bit confusing. It says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you are also suffering. Um, it's, it's, it's a little awkward because what is he talking about? What, is, what evidence? What does this refer to? Or, and, and what is the judgment? That is, is it judgment for the believer? Is it judgment for God's enemies? Well, in just a moment, he's about to talk about judgment on God's enemies, on those who don't know God and who don't uh, obey the gospel, he'll say, uh, and he'll talk very specifically about the judgment that is to come. But in this verse, where he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, I think is talking about the judgment of God that the believer faces. Now, you might stop right there and say, wait, I didn't think we faced judgment. Well, as a believer, you don't face judgment in the sense of receiving uh, the just judgment for your sin. But you do face the judge who received the judgment for your sin. So as you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will stand before him clothed in his righteousness, declared guiltless. But you are standing before the one who took that upon himself. And so in that sense, you are facing the judgment. And what I think the Apostle Paul is saying here is this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God for your salvation. So then, okay, so there it is. The day of the Lord comes. Jesus is revealed. Here's the lamb who is slain, who's also the Lion of Judah, right? The one who's come to bring judgment. And as you stand before him, you stand as one to give account, but you give the account of Jesus. You plead the blood of Jesus, and you are covered. But in that moment as well, there is evidence to this fact. This again, this gets into that murky water of sanctification. But you come as those who bear the marks of Jesus. You don't bear the marks of the crucified Lord, but you bear the marks of the sanctified Son of God. You bear what it looks like to be one of his brothers, one of the children of God. What is the evidence? Well, the evidence here, this is the evidence. The evidence is what he just said. All the things the Apostle Paul just gave thanks for. Love, faith, steadfastness, and hope in the face of persecution. And I think, in particular, the Apostle Paul is noting that. That steadfastness in the face of persecution. I think we struggle to view our sanctification... Because we struggle to recognize the marks of Jesus in our life. We struggle to see it. And yet, the Lord Jesus has promised that he will not only save us, but he will transform us by his power. And here are the marks. Here are the evidence of that. Uh, We see this throughout Scripture, of course. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things are marks of the kingdom of God. What does it mean for you to be worthy of the kingdom of God? Well, it means for you to, to, to bear the king's mark. You've been saved, right? That is why we have a mark of baptism, which points to that, that work of the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, transforming us, changing us, It's a mark of being washed and cleansed and forgiven. It's a mark of that union that we have with him. It's a mark that says, you belong to the king. And part of that is what adorns us. What adorns us is the fruit of our salvation. Here's the key. We are saved by the blood of the lamb, which is our only hope. But we also know that he grants to us, to his people, the ones whom he saves, this Holy Spirit that sanctifies. He makes us holy that we would bear fruit. And this fruit is the evidence of God at work in us. It is not the basis or measurement for which we are saved. And and. I think sometimes we'll think, well, I see a little bit of fruit, but I don't see a lot of fruit. Mm. Do you feel that sometimes, where you're like, man, okay, fine, I, I didn't, I didn't scream at my child; I just yelled at them. <laughs> it's like measure of degrees, right? You know, we, we, we I, I'm often very sort of self-critical, and so I don't often see the fruit. And this, this. This passage preaches to me because it reminds me that I need to be looking for it. But often we'll say, okay, even if there's a little fruit, I have all this other stuff that isn't good. And if you put it on a scale, for sure all the stuff that isn't good is going to outweigh the, those little baby fruits that are, that are bearing. Uh, it, it doesn't measure. But that's the thing. When we come to that judgment day, when we face the Lord Jesus, and he looks at us, He doesn't see that measurement. What he sees is himself, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, us as his his brother. God the Father sees us as his child. And all the adornments, however small or large, are just evidence to the wonder of his grace. It's not about how much and does it fit into the scale, but is the question... Is God at work in your life? What does it mean for us? It means we rest in Him and His finished work. So we think about sanctification. That is the number one thing we have to think about. We rest in His finished work. He is the one who... Is worthy. Second, it means we walk in Him, knowing that He furnishes us with the power to endure. You may not feel it. You may think, I don't know about that power. I don't see it at work in my life. Believer, you trust in Jesus. You know your brokenness and sin. You know that He is your only hope, and you're resting in Him. Brother, sister, he furnishes you with his power. Walk. And finally, it means we praise and thank him for whatever good we do. It's not of ourselves. We got we to come back to that point that we made at the beginning. Give thanks to God. We ought always to give thanks to God. Paul is particularly here, like I said, noting how they endured suffering in the face of persecution. And so he continues to talk about judgment with regard to those who act unjustly and cruelly toward them. So the Apostle Paul here is taking this evidence, their, willing, their, in, their endurance of persecution, and he's turning the, he's turning the, the lens of God's uh, glory, if you will, onto uh, those who would do such wicked things to the believers. And he's turning it and he's saying, This is for your encouragement, believer. Justice will come. He says it here in verse six since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It goes on, but I just want to stop right there. He he is the one who will repay with affliction those who afflict. For some of you, this may feel a little bit harsh, <laughs> but I don't know about you, but I look around the world and I see all the injustice that goes on and I long for justice. Mm-hmm. I can't help it. So I look at Ukraine and I think, who can stop him? Who can stop a madman coming who has, a, who has a, in one hand a rod to beat the Ukrainians and in the other hand has a nuclear weapon to destroy the world? Who can stop him? We have a king who sits on high, who will bring justice. As you look around the world at Christians who face persecution for their faith, say faith, life, and death, who will stop those cruel and wicked people? The Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all going to face this judge some of you here may not have put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe Christianity is something you're exploring. Maybe you're wondering about this God who is the judge. And maybe you're a believer who sits here and thinks, yeah, all those wicked people out there are going to get judged. Let me let me just just note here Justice comes against all injustice. And there are only two paths to that. Either as those who find themselves resting in Christ and that work of justice done on the cross find hope and salvation, not because of anything in them, but because they are resting and trusting in the finished work of Christ, justice is accomplished for them. Or you will face the judgment throne, either you rest in Jesus or you face this throne. And what does the throne look like? I want to I just sort of unpack it a little bit as we think about this. The Lamb of God who is slain for us is coming to bring judgment. And this is what it, what it looks like. He says, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Notice here it doesn't say when the Lord Jesus comes. Not that you can't. Elsewhere in Scripture it says when the Lord Jesus comes, and it's sort of an image of heaven to earth, right? Here it's a picture or image of revelation. What was hidden has now been revealed. And what does it look like? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. With the mighty angels, an army in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is a picture from Isaiah chapter 66, where in Isaiah chapter 66, it says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with With all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Friends, if you're here and you're just kind of, you're just waltzing through life. You think, I've got this taken care of. I'm not worried about the day of the Lord. I'm not, you know, we are such a materialist people. We often, like, whenever we even come, even as Christians, come to think about the coming of the Lord Jesus, we think of it in terms of something distant, something far off, something that is not necessarily going to happen anytime soon. The way Scripture talks about it is something that could happen at any moment, and when it does, it'll be a terrifying event because we'll face the living God, the one who is worthy, faced up against those who are unworthy. And where do you stand? We can look at the world and say, look at all the injustice, and I would just say, what about you? What about your ways of injustice, the way that you didn't treat people as you ought, you will face the judge and the call is to turn and trust in him. I want to close with uh, thinking about one last thought. We've already noted that worthy is the lamb who's at work in us as believers and worthy is the lamb who is the judge who comes to judge the living and the dead, and we face that. We face it in Christ or outside of Christ, and we're called to repent and believe. But the last thing I want us to think about is this worthy lamb whose grace brings glory. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that I think we all long for a piece of glory. We all long for, for some sort of uh, a, a, a way in which we can shine out into the world for ourselves, and this this is honestly the problem even if you go back into Isaiah uh, the the people sought their own glory, Israelites sought their own glory, and so they were facing the judgment of god, and now, at the end. God says, I will bring about glory. I'm going to bring about my glory. It's going to be revealed, exposed. Jesus comes and it says, uh, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day, to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony." To you is believed. The Lord Jesus comes, reveals himself, the Lamb who was slain, who is full of glory. And the question I think for us is where do we find joy and pleasure? Do we find it in our glory, or do we find it in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? This this may be the fundamental question for all of us. Do I live? You know, we're we're asking the question about sanctification. What does it mean for us to, to, to walk in newness of life? And the question is, do I live for my pleasure, my own glory, or do I live to please God, to find my glory wrapped up in His? I think this is our fundamental question of life. <laughs> this is, what am I about? Who am I? Am I somebody who, who is clearly I'm not worthy, but, but I'm looking for worthiness in my work. I'm looking for worthiness in all that I do. I'm looking for worthiness in my accolades as, an, as, as a professional or an academic or uh, a mother. Where do I find my pleasure and glory? Is it, am I looking for it in myself, or am I looking for it in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul here is saying, listen, this is the argument. He's saying, I'm so grateful to God because he's at work in you. You are, being, you are showing forth the fruit of faith. And when you face that judgment, you are going to be loved and cared for in Christ because you are connected to him. And those who, who, are, who are seeking their own glory, who don't know God, right? That's what it says. Those who do not know God nor obey God. Uh, nor obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who, you might summarize as seeking their own glory, will face judgment. And the question for us is, what about you? Mm. What are you about? So the Apostle Paul ends with a prayer. He says, to this end, we pray for you. We pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. This is our prayer. As we think about the Christian life, we think about our own unworthiness, and we consider, what am I about? Am I about myself or am I about the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ? My encouragement to us as believers is to recognize that our glory, the only real glory that we'll ever have, is found in Jesus. That's it. We've got nothing else. We've got Jesus. And when he comes in all his splendor and glory, what he says to us is, you will find joy in me. You'll find glory in me. You will be found worthy Basking in the glory of Jesus, we actually shine out the glory of Jesus. And how do we do that? By his grace. By his grace. The Apostle Paul ends with these words. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. How? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Amen. Let's pray.